Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Ivy Lab. The British duo of Sabre and Stray have come up with a sound that finds a middle ground between drum and bass, dubstep, hip-hop, and techno, all glued together by colossal sound design. The hybrid sound has earned them an enormous audience in the US far bigger and more dedicated than they might have guessed. It's an unlikely turn for two drum and bass producers to find so much success in America, but it's also driven them even deeper into a heady, festival-ready style. RA's Andrew Rice sat down with the duo to talk about their meteoric rise and success across the pond, ahead of an upcoming North American tour that'll see them settle down in Los Angeles to record new music. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with Ivy Lab is up next. Yeah, I mean, the four years thing is probably when we began as a business. Yeah. And when we decided to start taking things seriously because we realized there was some potential to what we were doing more than just a, a kind of fun hangout of friends making music together. Yeah. We felt like it could be the thing that eclipses what we were all doing individually. But we've been messing about with each other creatively for the better part of a decade. The biggest first splashes that we made were maybe six years ago, something like that. It's been a slow process. I mean, by that amount, you can see it took us two years to decide that actually, yeah, let's let's do this seriously. And then another two years to decide, actually, let's maybe put on the back burner some of our solo stuff. So like a four-year kind of honeymoon period. and then Pretty another, cautious, cautious yeah, people. <laughs> we, are, we are naturally quite cautious yeah. people. And I guess our game plans are, are, are quite long-term. We're all quite inclined to think a year, two, three, five years into the future. So before we wanted to make those kind of commitments, that's what the early stages were about, was just feeling each other out and making sure that we could work with each other and that we were all on the same page and that if we were going to do something bold, which we did end up going and doing by 
ditching the drum bass, then we'd all be on side with it, you know? So how did your guys' creative relationship develop from just working together like 10 years ago to becoming Ivy Lab? One of the things that happened was we wrote a track called Oblique that got put out on Critical Records. I think we wrote it, I think, the summer of 2010. It ended up coming out the very beginning of 2012, I think. Does that sound about right? I mean, it certainly came out when I'd already left the country and moved to Thailand. And that was the summer of 2011, so it can't, okay. have, it can't have been any sooner than that. 2011. I, that track coming out... It was certainly winter when it came out. I remember It was that. winter, okay. Was yeah, cold. I think January. Maybe it was a year earlier than I thought. Um, that track coming out, I don't think we quite anticipated how favourably it would be received. And I would say it was off the back of that favourable reception that we decided... Okay, because at that point we were still writing music under the three of our individual names, Sabre Stray, Halogenics, bit of a mouthful. We'd kind of talked about the possibility of formalising the collective and coming up with a name, but it was, yeah, it was after that record came out and did better for us than we'd expected that we thought, okay, maybe there's, maybe there's legs in this. And it was after that that we, we made the name. And that was one step of formalising the collective. That was probably the first step. One of the things that happened is we started putting equipment from each other's setups into each other's studios. I think we all had three individual studios and our point of view was that we'd all just make our music and occasionally we'd jam in each other's studio and and get together and make music. But I think what became clear was that because we were now going to focus on that, the best pieces of equipment from everyone's studios ended up drifting around the main studio. And actually it was very democratic for the first couple of years. We spent probably the first maybe two years or maybe a year and a half in my studio and then the next maybe year and a half uh, at Lawrence's studio, which was, I guess, really the Ivy Lab. That was the basement that had ivy growing around the outside of it. It was the, it was the room in which we minted the name. And then that lasted for like, yeah, maybe a year and a half, two years. And then we went off to Jay's studio after that. One of us got sick and just spending all of our time yeah. in, our own, in our own space and waking up in the work week and having like two dudes like come over and you're just you're still in your well G's studio wasn't in his bedroom but just still in your yard so once we got sick of that we'd move on to someone else's and it's good to have a change of scenery as well remind me of the core question again how did we work on creatively how, how did your your uh, creative relationship develop over the years i think learning how each other write and approach listening to and creating music a lot more so that we became really well versed in each other's techniques and taste so that caused it all to slowly converge towards one. And when it becomes one, you're like, you're an artist, right? As in your Ivy Lab collectively. I guess also what ends up happening when you work with other people is that your audience changes. So when you start making music just for yourself, your audience is yourself and maybe a few of your trusted peers around you. When you start working within a trio, your audience or the people who are best geared to sound out the quality of the music end up being the other members of the band. So I was subconsciously making music that I knew that Jay and Lawrence would be into. Uh, Jay was doing the same for Lawrence and I, and I'm sure Lawrence would probably agree that when he was making music, he was doing it through a filter that was geared towards what we thought about music and our ideas and our conventions and our red lines. It's worth saying that isn't a huge departure from the style we would think about writing in before, because part of the reason we came together as a collective is 
because we already had such a shared taste and vision that it was actually viable to work together in the first place. But it is true that we would start and sending that filter of what are the other guys into specifically, but it wasn't, it wasn't so difficult and it didn't cause some kind of deviation from what we wanted to do, right? Because we, we were really into what each other were doing. And it's something that we can dissect and talk about now in hindsight at the, at the time and even now, because we're, you know Jay and I are still going through this process, we're not consciously doing this. This is something that just happens as part of our subconscious creative process. One of the other really big things that changed for when Ivalab was was creating 2020, because up until that stage, we were a a creative arts trio who made some T-shirts and you know came up with some designs for some vinyl and put out music that we that we'd composed, but we weren't. We weren't a fully fledged business in the way that 2020 was. And when 2020 came along, it introduced a lot of new dynamics to the crew that we really had to try and work out what we were about in a much grander sense, how we were as businessmen, how we were as label bosses, how we were as A&R people for the, um, for the artists that we were putting out in 2020. We all had to kind of adapt quite a lot to, to, to taking on those roles. And that was probably the biggest shift in how we thought about the music industry and our place in it and our creative vision is when that came along. Again, I don't think it was ever a, like a, a sit down codified kind of discussion or, or round table that took place. It was just a series of processes that, that over time became clear needed to happen in order for us to be good at being label bosses and, and, and event promoters. We, you know, we, we were really glad we went through that process because it's made us, it's, it's made our, our song making stronger because what we've come to understand about the industry and more so our, our audience since we became businessmen has meant that our product is, I guess, more defined. You know, we, we understand what we are, but we also now, probably in a way we didn't before, understand what we are not. I think that's a really important thing. We understand what our limits and what our boundaries are. We're kind of, we're more focused on on what we think we can really achieve and what our position in the landscape is. What do you mean you figured out what you're not? I mean, what, what aren't you? Well, okay, I'll, give, I'll give you a good example. Even five years ago or six years ago, I was making a bunch of techno and I'd made a relatively arbitrary decision that I wanted to start making techno almost as a reverse engineering from the idea that I grew up on very techno-inspired drum and bass. So the Falcons and Kamals and Johnny L's of this world and the Adrushan Opticals and the kind of late 90s tech stuff, I'd decided, oh, actually, I really like the sound palette and it's best done within techno. I'm going to start making a load of techno. But that was... Like, like I said, a very arbitrary decision. It wasn't born out of a natural uh, creative want. And I think there have been lots of these little escapades that all of us have gone on over the years that have been enjoyable, but have ultimately not really come to as much as they needed to because we, we didn't know what our limitations were. And we, you can overcome those limitations through practice and through research and through delving into the worlds that you're, you're trying to buy into. But I guess that wasn't necessarily happening for all of us. Lawrence was making some different types of music. Jay was making some different types of music. We were all trying to do different things that were maybe outside the scope of our core abilities. And it took a little bit of a while for us to work out, actually, this is what we really should be focusing on. We're okay at some stuff. We're genuinely world-class at other things. Let's focus on the stuff that we're really good at. When that started happening, that's when we as a collective really started to fly. It's funny, though, because I would think of some of the, the core Ivy Lab records, at least since 2020, I would think of it as like a departure from what you used to do. 
like the you know because even at the beginning of Ivy Lab was pretty conventional drum and bass, and then you guys just like kind of switched. Yeah, versus I suppose what we started out releasing, but the three of us started producing hip hop and and beats and stuff. I think before we got into writing drum and bass, and just speaking from a personal perspective, I. I love drum and bass, I, I still do, but what happened was I got into the music and kind of got swept up in it and the music that I started releasing when I first started releasing was around that time I'd gotten into drum and bass or a particular kind of branch of it, but it didn't necessarily represent the full spectrum or exactly what it was I knew I wanted to write and what looking like a departure from the outside when we started doing the, the beats hip hop thing was actually kind of like, felt like a bit of a homecoming, it felt like just personally like it was really true to what i felt i was best at i would 100 percent agree with that when i started making music which was like 97 98 using fruit loose on my parents computer that got off the front of a pc production magazine all the first things that i, I was making were instrumental hip-hop stuff that i used to give to like rapper friends of mine and you know never turn into anything and i realized that they were flawed and that they weren't ready but that at some point in time i would develop the ability to make this stuff and put my own slants on it and that the landscape would be sympathetic to that slant which i think is something that's changed i don't think the landscape has always been sympathetic the hip-hop landscape has always been that sympathetic to our idea of or, or, of hip-hop or instrumental hip-hop so the word that jay used homecoming is definitely true it felt like it was the coming together of something that previously was like i said an arbitrary decision you know we really felt connected to this music and we really wanted to indulge in it but we hadn't come to a natural state of creative being within it and that took a little while to realize but when we eventually got there and Again, through all the processes I was describing before, we'd indulged ourselves in the world, we'd done the research, we'd become scholars of the world, we'd, we'd tried to examine where the audience was, how they feel, where they were located. Once all of those things became clear, then I think we were confident enough to release that onto the world and say, actually, this is part of who we are. This is no longer a pipe dream that we're entertaining for nostalgic or sentimental reasons because, you know, in Jay's case, he grew up listening to Luke Viber or whatever. And in my case, I grew up listening to like skater hip hop. And so it was the coming together of years and years worth of misadventure that had finally started to pay off and pay off in a way that we'd always hoped that it would do. So if it's about that sat satisfaction brought by having by the music that you're listening to a lot being quite in sync with what you're writing i was listening to a whole lot of drum and bass and then i was writing it and then i sort of stopped listening to as much drum and bass i still kind of really liked it in a club context or um there was some drum and bass that i listened to right but not as often as i was listening to beats essentially instrumental hip-hop beats kind of post diller instrumentals all of this kind of stuff that i was listening to both before and during and kind of after this kind of fleeting relationship with, with listening to drum and bass it fell a little bit out of sync so I was writing a lot of, of drums but not really listening I was listening to this other kind of stuff and there was a slight feeling of frustration I was like this is cool but I'd like to get this a bit more synced up and I guess now I'm sure all most producers do I listen to all sorts of different types of music and actually touching on what Go said before about knowing what you're not I, I'm not sure I've fully managed to let go of it yet but definitely more than I have done in the past I had a 
desire to be able to get that sync up I was talking about with everything I was listening to. It's like, I love this and I love this and I love this. So I want to output all of it because only then will I feel like, you know, satisfied creatively. I've come to learn that's definitely not true. Some people probably can, but I don't spend enough of my time writing or being creative to be able to achieve that anyway. But um, the, the stuff I was listening to a lot, I found I was starting to produce that was really in line with that style of music. And there's a real inherent satisfaction that comes with that. And I think that's certainly how I feel at the moment. What a lot of people don't realise is that behind the scenes, while we were making all this drum and bass stuff, we were practising and practising and practising and honing our skills and doing the research and doing the homework and working out exactly what our place in the beats, post-trap, kind of future bass, wherever you want to half-time, wherever you want to describe this, this sound as, we were putting the work in behind the scenes so that when it did finally get unveiled to the public, there was no risk of people going, oh, this is pastiche, or this is something that's been drawn up on paper as opposed to drawn up in the studio in front, in front of a DAW. We were very cautious in the same way that we were cautious when we created the collective to make sure we did things the right way and we didn't overstate what we were capable of. Were you guys nervous or worried at all about bringing that kind of halftime hip-hop kind of stuff, especially with the first 2020 compilation, to a mostly drum and bass audience? Yeah, there was a real sense of nerves and also trepidation about it that was compounded a little by going and starting to play shows and some shows we I want to say get away with it good traction playing introducing some of this halftime stuff to a drum and bass crowd but sometimes there was an air of disappointment right and sometimes that would translate explicitly into people getting in our ears afterwards or, or whatnot the way we tried to approach it was just bit by bit and not just do the whole change at once and I think that was reflected on the records we were putting out started out being well, all drum and bass records. And then when we start doing the halftime thing, it was maybe one or two halftime tracks on an otherwise predominantly drum and bass record, just shifting people's perceptions of us bit by bit, as opposed to doing it all in one go. And I think people came with us on that more than at one point in time we suspected they might. And I think we were really pleased that that happened. But to answer your question, there was certainly... I'm trying to think if nerves is the right... I was nervous. Yeah, I, th I, th I think I it, was super nervous. I think it I is a case of nerves. Yeah, there, there are two things that quash that, which is the home unit night at Silver Bullet and mm. the release of Volume One, and that put everything to bed. But yes. up until that point, we'd been dabbling. We'd been making podcasts which featured this stuff. We'd been playing some of it in our shows, and I'm not sure this necessarily happened to you or Lawrence, but I certainly got. I got it in the neck at Sun and Bass when I played there and I played a load of halftime stuff because it was right at the cusp of what we were doing. It felt super exciting. And certainly the guest list knew what I was doing and were really into just witnessing what I was planning on playing because they knew it was going to be a real departure from everything else that was going to play to Sun and Bass. They were all really into it. But some people in the crowd came up to me afterwards and really gave it to me. It was like really disheartening. You know, it was worrying because there's three of us. Making money as a trio is three times harder than it is making it as a, as a solo act or at least making a living not making money but actually making it work uh, as a viable career is, is three times more problematic than being solo we were doing okay for ourselves doing the drum and bass circuit and putting our drum and bass records and you know there were the moment there's moments where i was like you know we could blow this there's gonna be enough people in within the drum and bass scene who it's not the most open-minded genre of music quite often it's very tribal and people are very protective especially about deserters which i think is kind of an accusation that we has leveled at us quite a lot and so i, I was, was really worried yeah. that like we're going to squander all this work yeah because we weren't sure what we needed to do is make sure we'd found enough traction with a slightly wider audience who were into the halftime stuff 
before the point in time that we risked completely alienating all of our drum and bass crowd, which I'm not sure we ever ended up doing happily, but there was a very real risk that we could have, right? So we, we were worried that that would happen. We were worried at the same time we, we hadn't put enough of a foot in the in the hip-hop beats halftime realm, however you want to put it. Um, yeah, and those guys would look at us as frauds. And, right, and, and right. And They'd listen not, to our drum and bass yeah. back catalogue and be like, oh, are they going to oh, show up God, to a yeah. set where we want them to play, play beats or... And, and play a bunch of drum and bass and jungle, which we don't want to hear. So it was only until we knew we'd made enough of a bed in that scene to really switch over. But yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty hard to to know whether we were playing it right and not. Of course, nervous is the right word. I mean, that is reflected when we remember like we'd go and playlist for shows, and we'd we'd ask ourselves the question like, oh, should we should we be playing more? on base right that's a nervous sounding question right yeah it, it is a nervous sounding question and it was it was genuinely terrifying for a couple of years because we put in so much work getting to where we were at that stage and there was a really clearly defined pathway and business model for us just to streamline through and we were thinking of disrupting that and there were people around us who probably probably didn't want us to disrupt that either you know they were they were they were making their their commission or their royalties from us as well and i'm sure they may have been looking at going are you sure you really want to do this but no one stopped us everyone embraced us everyone had belief in us and the label bosses and our agents and all those guys were like i think you can make this work i think the core proposition of what you are putting forward which is that you can borrow bits of audience from various parts of the bass music landscape and coalesce them around a new movement which is tethered around the sonics of hip-hop is a good proposition and will probably it's probably got some legs to it i think you should i think you should go forward with it and so you're did. right this happened around the time people actually got their ears around volume one and yes. that was it, it was backed up with the music that they listened to it and went yes i can see this so this is how 2020 was launched we put a couple of thousand pounds aside for the money that we had and said bearing in mind at this point we're paying ourselves six maybe 700 pounds a month salary right we're paying ourselves nothing this is the very beginning of the 2020 project and we're, we're putting two or three thousand pounds a year aside just to throw free club nights in london just as a way of piloting this idea let's let's, let's put some money aside let's see if the audience come and uh, come and respond to it after that let's see if we can you know just at least not lose tons of money but you know just maybe even get close towards breaking even and thankfully the, the whole idea of piloting it only lasted for a year before Colombo showed up and were like, this runs, don't do what you're doing anymore, come and we will give you some proper money to run your night properly and to up to, to scale it up and to, and to move it to the next level. And by that stage, the record label wasn't very old. I mean, the record label had been around for, I mean, a few months. Was there an audience in London when you started doing those, those first parties? Yeah, there was. And I, and I think the audience in London was... First of all, 2020 came just as America got on to its most brash incarnation of dubstep. And so there was a lot of kind of dubstep refugees rocking around London, tons of them, tons of them. So we definitely picked up a bunch of those guys. Also, I guess Soundcrash had done an incredible job of, of really building up the, the London landscape as well. But what they were doing, I guess, was more kind of heritage acts and some of the newer talent they weren't necessarily supporting. So I guess we saw ourselves as underlings to what they were doing in the London scene. Our hope, 
that the people on the experimental fringes of the drum and bass circuit, the people who for three or four years prior to that were listening to Autonomic and who six or seven years prior to that were listening to Paradox in Alaska and before that were listening to Bookham, that ilk of, of audience member, they would come along with us and they did. That formed quite a large part of the, was it like 150 strong crowd at the Silver Bullet events? They were like drum and bass fans, as G said, were listening to that kind of left field drum and bass sound before that grew from autonomic and because it was just sort of predominantly halftime as well and who were probably just drum and bass fans that are into hip-hop and beats as well so i think they existed a little bit more than we might have suspected and then they were probably a large part of our of our audience at you're, that time you're, you're right it probably was and also the experimental thing and the minimal thing had not collapsed but it was certainly never it never lived up to its its hype or its potential it wasn't as dance floor oriented as what we were doing maybe so it, it kept going on in terms of people wanting to play certain sets or as listening music but we kind of compounded a slightly new genre of it that was still quite left of center but quite dance floor tinged and i think people were happy to come to a night which featured that you're definitely right in terms of intensity i think just in terms of the kind of intrepid spirit yeah. People who admire the intrepid spirit in music, and especially in drum and bass, those people, I think, were a little bit lost at the time that we set up 2020. Yeah. And we were quite a welcome touchstone for them at that point in time. Um, we, we we arrived just at the right, right moment for them, where there wasn't necessarily anything obvious for them to gravitate towards. I mean, the, the landscape is much richer now. And if you are one of those one of those people who just wants to see experimentation in bass, you know, there's a lot of different options where you could go to. But at that point, you know, it did genuinely feel like the the coming together of hip hop and bass music was the the the, the grand new frontier. And you know, this is a long time ago now, yeah. but um, at, th at that point, it really did feel like that. And um, was or is there still a connection to drum and bass in the music releases Ivy Lab now? Yeah, the connection to drum and bass is in the, the way the music is engineered. And arranged. DJ intros, breakdowns, yeah. quite often 16-bar cycles. It's these like, aren't things that are unique to drum and bass, but these are things that are part of our DNA because of drum and bass. We pick them up because of our involvement in drum and bass. It's being able to make like a wider scope of instrumental hip-hop music pop on a lot of dance floor systems, right? And we can probably do that as a result of our training or experience if you like as as drum and bass producers which is like super demanding right the range and scope of sounds and samples that you have to meld together in a way that that runs is quite testing so we apply that to it's not even as though the samples we look for are particularly different it's just the pace of it yeah i mean we still make quite bleak melancholy music yeah. we still the palette's not no, super distant no it's still very kind of 70s sci-fi still a lot of brave new world stuff in there it's it's not that different in a lot of ways to the stuff that we were making when we were making drum and bass. It's just that I guess the the intensity and the aesthetic is just is, is a little bit different now. Yeah, you can go a little bit more off like the beat grid, but if you think we're always into writing kind of quite funky loose uh, uh, breaks at drum and bass tempo, and now it's not as though we've halved them because there is scope to do other things with it. But that kind of element of swung funk is still I like to think present in our. The, the beats and the drums that we that we write so i think that the main thing that's come over from drum and bass is the aspiration to make bass lines interesting and so there's not a bunch of kind of 808 tunes i will have a, a, a like you know big slap hard 808 tracks because 
I think as much as we like that sound, we definitely play a bunch of that stuff. I think when we're in the studio making things, we think actually there's there's more that can be done with this. There's more melody that can be introduced. There's also a certain way of making those types of track bang that I don't think we're as good at as other people. So when you hear those kind of like just 808 mm. tracks, I don't think that's our area of expertise to, to do as well as other people. Yeah, it's doing these kind of um, interesting bass line tracks, as you, as yeah. you put it. Try, we trying to find quirky bass. bass sounds and, yeah. you know, maybe not going full on talking bass kind of farty noises. Like we don't, we're not, that's not really our niche. That said, it's funny what you can get away with at half time tempo. So we we were all, I actually was really into writing really screechy jump up stuff. I'm not sure a lot of it got put out. I'm more than happy to say that on the record. Like I was really into listening to it, going out to jump up raves and whatnot. I think Govey were probably into slightly more old school jump up. I was into some pretty ridiculous bass lines sounds like, but because of the music that I was actually putting out at the time, it's kind of minimal autonomic style drum and bass. I would shy away from obviously playing that stuff in sets for, you know, for good And this reason. comes back to the knowing who you are and who, right. knowing who you at are not. At least knew that at that point, yeah. to, to that extent. But now, I think that there is a lot you can get away with doing stuff over pretty interesting, innovative sounding, I guess you could say half tempo, just hip hop beats really, and go pretty full on with the bass line and you just get away with it a bit more. But we really like listening to and making playful music. And now that we've kind of uh, switched into doing this this style, we feel so much more of a greater license to be really playful with the music that we write, but maintain a kind of classiness to it. What's there's a, there's really a kind playful. of sleazy coolness to playful music at 85 BPM yeah. that does not exist at 170. Yeah, exactly. And it's really exactly tragic it. because yeah. it's not to do with music, it's to do with all of the auxiliary factors that go along with it. Like, if Jump Up Drum and Bass was massive in Berlin, Milan, London, New York, I think it'd be a very different story. But the truth of the matter is that Jump Up is massive in Belgium and, and like Eastern Germany. And those kind of things count against it in a, as a genre in a way that it probably shouldn't really because it's got a really important purpose and it doesn't really get the credit that it should but that's enough for it to all of those things are enough for it to not have been viable as a course for us to go down during our days as a drum and bass act so we ended up kind of shying away from it but all that stuff doesn't exist now for, for the half-time stuff. So we can genuinely make very silly music. Half-time jump up. Yeah, half t basically half-time jump up. And and people give us credit for it in a way that they, they wouldn't have done if they yeah. if it was twice the speed, which is hilarious, but also like quite enabling. You know, The first time I heard the, the first 2020 compilation, my first reaction was like, okay, what the fuck? And second of all is that it reminded me a, a lot of the music I didn't like at like big North American festivals, but it sounded okay in that context. Like there's a lot of these big sounds, big bass lines, which I was like, I was surprised by, but it also kind of made sense, which I think has also helped you guys find a big foothold in North America. Yeah, I love that's exactly yeah. how we, that, we, that, we want to see that, it. That is exactly and that, that, that's the are. role that we've uh, been we've been drawn into play when we go to the States is to appear on lineups where we stand out as the kind of, I don't want to say like token, but like the some, accent. An accent. With the accent. accent. That, that, that sits there in a lineup. And I got to tell you, it is absolutely exhausting treading this line. It, the amount of thought and the amount of kind of observation required to be 
that act that sits on this line between being slightly pretentious and being slightly bro and trying to navigate right down the middle is absolutely exhausting. But the problem is that that is the core proposition of what Ivy Lab is. Is it, We are that act that has to stay down the middle. And if you are into unashamedly loud balls to walls music, don't worry, Ivy Lab are not going to patronize you. But if you are into super avant-garde, cutting-edge music, don't worry, Ivy Lab are not going to offend you. Pray to God we can maintain this balancing act for, for the foreseeable future. I think we can because we've now spent so much time trying but to hone our skills at doing it's it. It's not so super difficult because I feel like it's where our taste naturally sits. I don't think we have to try too hard to write music that bridges that that straddles that line because you know we're I, into... I, I, think, I think in the studio, it's a bit more sewn up. But as a DJ. We, but as a DJ yeah. and in terms of who we choose to align ourselves with and how we choose to present ourselves and how we choose to brand ourselves and talk about ourselves and the endeavours and the roles we decide to try and take on, that's where things change a little bit. Hmm. Were you guys uh, surprised at how receptive North American audiences were to Ivy Lab? The sheer extent of it, probably... But not super surprised in the sense that it makes a lot of sense based on, proportionally speaking, how much the states are into hip-hop and come from the type of hip-hop that we grew up listening to and basing a lot of our music on. It's just a lot bigger out there than it is in the UK, right? There's, there's no two ways about it. So when it started happening, we were like, okay, this makes sense. But yeah, like the, the rate at which it happened and... The proportion of audience seems to have shifted to such a great degree out to the States and the proportion of the shows that we play along with it, I'm not sure any of either of us saw it happening to this extent. But it's really awesome. One of the things that's great about it is, remember we were talking a bit about this baggage from being drum, known as drum and bass producers before and being slightly nerve, nervy DJs as a result. That just doesn't happen because a lot of people in America got into our music first after we'd started just doing the halftime beats kind of thing so we go out there and they always just kind of expected and wanted us to do to do that kind of thing which is really alleviating um when we were just starting out no we didn't we didn't quite expect it to be to be quite as much as it is i mean i was really nervous because i grew up in central north london surrounded by a uk hip-hop world of people were like you know berry crew mud fam all the kind of kung fu lot all those guys and hearing all the horror stories of how badly received the uk interpretation of hip-hop was in north america i saw myself as being part of this uh, of a new wave of people trying to bring a uk slant on hip-hop to the states and my presumption was that the you know the states was just going to go yeah you know what we're we're kind of good already don't worry like we've got the we've got this on lock we don't need your help which they'd done to plenty of uk people over the years already but it, it wasn't like that. They were entirely receptive. And I guess, you know, there'd been enough people before us from this side of the pond who'd made a big splash. Hudmo had made a splash already. Rusty had made a splash already. So there were people doing American ideas of hip-hop in Europe who'd already made that kind of breakthrough. Um, but I was, you know, I don't think we were expecting it necessarily. And when we did finally show up, and and do it and not actually have to change anything about what we're doing like we don't go to the states and 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 modify what we're doing if anything we modify our core taste 
for Europe more than we do Europe, yeah, yeah more than we do for the states our taste in music is very very american full stop mm. i mean that's probably ref- that's that's reflected all the way back to us using frank carter as a vocalist on our drum and bass projects we went for an american soul voice because that's kind of how our taste in music worked mm. rather than going for that sort of ethereal slightly folky european dance voice that you get in like a lot of trance or whatever, and you, just, you get still getting a lot of drum and bass. We didn't want that that sound. We wanted that very American sound to to our lyricist. I guess we were just relieved and honoured that you know we're selling American music back to Americans. They could be <laughs> quite offended by this, but they yeah. weren't. They were like, "Cool, come on board. We're feeling this. Thank you. Like, give us more." So now it does feel like a really natural home, and the shows that we've been doing out there have been some of the best shows we've, we've ever done the honest truth is down, so the honest truth is the vast majority of our work now is in north america yeah. you look at all the metrics we get back from the 2020 label and all of the heat maps and the top 10 cities and all of our audience concentrations it is very very largely in the united states i mean we've got we've got our hot spots in, in europe as well like amsterdam and hamburg berlin and vienna and copenhagen manchester like, manchester bristol, london, london bristol yeah. you know like uh, paris like good like places milan places where we've got like cool concentrations but nothing compared to what we've got in north america you look at the same maps we have and like the pacific coast is one solid block of audience the atlantic coast from i mean pretty much philly upwards is a big solid block of audience there's a big chunk around the great lakes i mean it's it's you show that to any agent or any anyone who's trying to trying to book shows for you or make work for you it's like great come and work here you know, that's, 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 what it's, that's what it's saying to anybody, which is basically what's ended up happening. We now spend such a huge proportion of our time in the United States and feel very home at there and feel super grateful that's a thing for us. Yeah, I, I saw you guys play in Boston a few years ago and um, a part of a festival. And I was just shocked. Like I was like, oh, this is where everyone is. Like The, the crowd was just going crazy for it. Part of a festival? With- Together festival. Oh, okay. It was like Reed Speed and stuff as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, Lawrence did that show. Oh, it was, okay. It was packed. Yeah, I mean, I heard good things about that show as well. But, you know, Boston we, has been ridiculous every yeah. time we've done Boston it. Like, up, is up about there as good as it gets for yeah, us. Yeah. But also, Boston's a funny one because the crowd, demographically, are so close to the crowd who come to 2020 in the UK. Yeah, they're a lot more metropolitan. They're than way more metropolitan. Some of the people that like, show up to our West Coast yeah. shows. The West, the West Coast the shows has definitely got more of that kind of Burning Man, New Age leaning vibe to Granola. it. But even our Philly, Baltimore, some of our New York shows still have that demographic coming there. But Boston, we looked out, like, we could have just walked out of Phonox and Brixton. And like, you you look just like our crowd. You you act like our crowd. There's loads of chicks here. There's loads of kind of metropolitan skater boys. It's like, you're so familiar as a bunch of people. And so I feel, I guess it's, it's unsurprising that Boston works out so well for us. The, the States as a whole is just, is the home for this stuff. And it's come together because all the, all the guys out there who are doing this stuff too, we weren't speaking to these people. We weren't speaking to G. Jones or Bleep Bloop or any of these guys out there who are on the same circuits as we are. We kind of knew what they were doing. We hoped they knew what we were doing. As it turns out, everyone's been keeping an eye on each other. And now we're meeting backstage, we're swapping telephone numbers and you know, we're getting the studio with each other. And I don't mean us particularly, I just mean the UK contingent and the US contingent. We're all messing with each other in a way that wasn't happening before. And as a result, creating this new transatlantic alliance because uh, it is still very UK, US orientated. There's a few Canadians, but you know, yeah, and Al- Alex and yeah, Prom were like yeah. massive catalyst to all of that. Obviously, doing the shades thing. 
But it's not it's not like drum and bass where you've got this massive Dutch contingent and a massive German contingent and it's still very UK, North America orientated. It's kind of like in the US there's there's this like chasm left after a pro step ruined everything and there's people that want to have like a bassy heavy music but they don't want like bro step and Absolutely. so this kind of halftime stuff fills that void and it, it does. It's all, it also describes the existence of this rhythm thing that everyone's coming about, which is kind of... I understand why it, it could qualify for its own title, but essentially it's Bro Step V2. But what it betrays is the amount of baggage that Bro Step had, had, had accumulated over the years and the necessity for there to be a purge and a reset. And so the reset was, was signified through a rebranding and a launch of a, of a new name. But... That worked for some people. For many other people, it was like, no, nah, I'm done with this BPM. I'm done with this this palette and this world and this sound. I need to find the next thing. So it's not even it wasn't even just post dubstep or post bro step, it was post trap as well. Because the trap thing, like started off being super cool and uh, and super metropolitan and um and and very very credible and very quickly descended into being like sort of like festival fast music and and, and getting a really bad reputation you know i'm sure like harlem shake going viral probably didn't help things i'm sure like the sound palette shifting as much as it did away from i guess kind of boombastic lex luger murder music to like warhammer nordic synths that probably didn't help things either but that world also like there's a whole bunch of people who are really invested in that world who were then floating about in the ether looking for something new to cling on to this is a word i keep using when i say to people refugees we we collect refugees from other bass music genres where people have become you sound so wrong it's true it's true there are just people there are people fleeing violence in their home scene they just do not want to be there anymore. They want to find something new and go to a safe space. We are that safe space. Do you kind of see the music you make as like a, a middle ground of, of the genres that came before? I don't know if we see it as a middle ground, but we know that for our audience, it's a middle ground. So I guess we, 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 we embrace that. The only thing that we are doing to modify what we're about as a crew, as a label, as a club night or whatever, in order to embrace that middle ground aesthetic is messing about with other BPMs. So 2020 was very purely a kind of one, like, you know, 160 to 175 BPM kind of crew and sound. But increasingly, we are playing a lot more slower music. We're releasing slower music. We're supporting acts who make stuff that's, I guess, you know, considered to be instrumental grime or stuff that's just considered to be trap or whatever. In keeping with, like, we've always listened to yeah. and made and yeah. been into music at a whole bunch of different tempos, so it's kind of... Exactly. But again, the incremental thing was important, like we were saying before. It's only around now that we're like, okay, we've kind of got everyone here and we can start doing what we're known for at different speeds without it being a departure from what we're known for. And I think it's only really been in the past couple of years of year that we've been able to to do that. It is. We didn't want to punch we only above... put out a handful of slower tempo. We didn't want to punch beats. above our weight and pretend as if we could just walk into this landscape and start putting out music that traditionally could have come out on a dubstep label or, you know, a kind of a different electronica label. Um, we knew what our niche was and we knew we, we had unfinished business with that. Once it felt as if we'd done enough cementing, we wanted to let people know, look, we have 
a big chunk of our taste is invested in slower BPMs. We want to support that stuff ourselves. We're going to start putting that stuff out on 2020. We're going to start releasing that stuff out. We're going to start, sorry, producing that stuff ourselves. Do you go to your question about whether it's a middle line? I think it, it, it naturally walks a middle line between different types of genres because we'll, we'll be listening to stuff, find inspiration in it, have a stab at it, but fall short because our area of expertise or the way we approach music making just isn't the way that's conducive to writing that genre in its purest form. So we, in falling short, and this is true of you know a bunch of different people as well, in falling short, it does create kind of middle ground genre. So if we go and try and create like a kind of, like some of these 130, 140, like Muramasa style, mm. sold out R&B tracks, we, we're not able to do them in the same way as we, we hear other people do them. So we apply what we know to it we and come up with something different. I think that's that's a frontier that's changed a yeah. lot in the last year, but it's changed for all we do We do them now. We can, we can do them now, but in a way that's formed of how we approach right music, which might be slightly different to how some of the cats we've been listening to write it. So it doesn't end yeah. up sounding like exactly what we might have, not necessarily been aiming for, but what we heard in our heads. But then after hearing what we've made it kind of starts becoming this like a kind of happy circle right because you listen to it, go, okay this is this type of thing and um but it's all it's all born out of that same caution we took our time yeah. and we applied due diligence and made sure that we properly understood that landscape and its complexities and its formulas and the expectations of its audience before we embarked on embedding ourselves in that world for the same reason as I said before. We didn't want to appear to be pastiche. We didn't want to pollute the landscape with music that had been conceived on paper, not in the studio, or not out of a, a, a pure, honest, creative vision. Has going from a trio to a duo changed the way you work at all or changed the nature of the music? I don't think it's changed the nature of the music. I mean, we have always particularly since doing to, to drum there's something about drum and bass that's very easily shared in the studio i can't quite put my finger on exactly why there's something about the way in which it's perhaps a little more formulaic i don't want to go saying drum and bass is formulaic but there's a way in which it's formulaic that some of the stuff we're doing at the moment isn't and it makes it really easy to share as the writing experience in the studio probably because of that when we were writing drum and bass we were a lot quite a lot together um, that's not to say we weren't working on tracks someone had started the skeleton of, but um, what happened as we moved towards doing the kind of hip-hop beats thing, just speaking like myself, there's something that feels, because of the way the drums sit and the groove of these tracks are, there's something quite personal, perhaps more personal about it than running with like a drum break and a drum bass record, at least at the start when we started doing this stuff, that it was all, all of the tracks were predominantly written solo by any one of the three of us. And then maybe some final bits of housekeeping were done or mastering were done at the end. Um, so that was true whilst it was all three of us. And it's 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 still true now. A lot of the music that we write is just one of us solo writing it. So that side of things hasn't changed. Musically, I think by the point in time we became a duo, our tastes and approaches to making music had converged so much in the way that we were talking about before, like writing music for the other two and knowing what everyone was into and what passed that filter converged so much and like I said we were this like one artist that it hasn't had a major impact there were certain styles that Lawrence was particularly good at that that we didn't do as much like the kind of uh, like he'd, he'd written some music with full full vocal tracks basically like really soulful kind of R&B style mm -hmm. tracks that like songs 
that we just hadn't done as much of and, and they're not part of the, the, the repertoire at the moment anymore as a result. But other than that specifically, I think um, I don't think it's changed it musically too much. I mean, there are certain things, I think, like Jay was saying, we're not going to be able to do quite so effortlessly going forward because they were Lawrence's forte. But even then, I mean, that's not, that's not to say that we can't make our own spin on them. So there are definitely vocal tracks that we put out in the past that yeah. were very... I guess very heavily inspired by Lawrence's ideas. And so, but there are other vocal tracks. I mean, the Banks remix, for instance, is something that Lawrence had almost no input in. It was a different idea on on how to make a vocal piece of music. And maybe that's a bit closer to actually what Jay and I feel as if we want to do with vocal music going forward. I think he saw himself as being in that kind of more sort of future R&B world and being very ethereal and spacey and reverby in the music that he made. And I guess we wanted just to make stuff that was a bit more kind of quirky and a bit more dance floor orientated, a bit more kind of almost like techno landscape-esque, not arranged like te- like techno, but the palette of it was was sounded like techno tunes. Yeah, there are things that we're not going to be able to do anymore, but there are plenty of things that actually we're going to end up doing better because when it comes to things like that, two different competing aesthetics for how to make a vocal tune, one of the competing aesthetics is now being taken out of the equation. And what's been left is something that's much more symbiotic between the two of us. And so when it comes to writing this next batch of this style of music, of which I'm sure there'll be a lot more of, it's going to be, I guess, a bit more of an effortless process perhaps. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, we we learned a lot of ideas from Lawrence over the years of working with him. He learned a lot of ideas from us. He, he, a lot of the music that he writes now, I'm not sure it can be avoided. Is going to be as a result of that influence, which is great, you know. And, and it's it's true for us as well. In terms of workflow, I think your workflow and the way you interact so that dynamic automatically changes when you go from three to two people. There is a slight. There, there's fewer people to to agree and bat ideas around. That's, that's nothing bad on Lawrence. It's just the nature of working as, as two people. Things can maybe happen a bit quicker because there's not the same length of the decision-making process. I mean, it has occurred to me there is a certain kind of style of track that I was making before that I may not be able to make again because I was basically making it for Lawrence. I was thinking, this is Lawrence's taste. I'm going to make a track that is for Lawrence's benefit. Now that he's gone... I'm probably not going to make those kind of tracks anymore, which is absolutely fine. The reverse is probably true as well. I'm sure there was plenty of music that Lawrence was making that he had his own slant on it, but he was thinking about, oh, will this get past Gove's filter? So I'm going to modify what I'm doing to make sure that he's into it. And so that those kind of tracks won't exist anymore. So there is a, a, like a certain collection or body of music that you know, just, just, just won't come out anymore. It hasn't died. It's just been replaced by something new and something forward. And actually that replacement is something that resonates a lot more with our musical ethos than the actual process of making these individual tracks. The idea that we're, we're, we're progressing and, and moving on to new territory. Do you guys have much interest in moving from instrumental hip hop to like actual rap music? Yeah, yeah, tons of interest. We've just been waiting for the right time to to strike with it. It's something we've been talking about a lot since we ever started writing music with each other. Because we we grew up listening to a lot of rap and hip hop, right? So, right, sitting there writing beats, of course. I'm also proud to admit I pretty much only listen to hip hop. I mean, I like I'd like to listen to a, a much wider. Uh, range of music than I do but especially for the last couple of years I've only listened to hip-hop especially quite alternative hip-hop I'm as desperate as I've ever been bearing in mind I've been making instrumental hip-hop for 20 years now 
to finally realize the potential of these tracks, which isn't necessarily as three minute dance floor instrumentals, which is as banging hip hop, banging vocal hip hop tracks. But not to sound like a broken record, but we're applying our due diligence. We don't want to walk into the hip hop landscape and pretend we're the real deal already because we're not. We haven't practiced. We haven't learned how to be get the best out of a session. We don't know what makes a good producer in a room with a rapper, you know, what kind of lexicon and workflow and methodology you need to take on to make a good record. All of that stuff we're going to do this year or over the space of the next year at least and work out what it takes to, to do the best job of this proposition. Once we feel as if we have the confidence to say, yep, this is us, we're, we're good to go, I mean, we're going we're gonna to push as hard as we can to get the biggest people that we can on as many of our records as possible and try and find as much of a team as possible who can make that happen. You know, it feels like the natural destiny for this ilk of 2020 music that we're making. Um, but we don't want to... We don't want to punch up other way. We don't want to get it wrong. We want to get it right from the get-go. So this is what we're we're working on now. Yeah, I've spent so long putting like found acapellas or samples with just rap acapellas over the top to fill out space in tracks because I always hear a rapper there because I'm listening to rap music and then going and making the beats and I always hear like a little cadence here or place of ears. I was like, it's I, I see, well, I'm sure a lot of people see rapper's voice as another... Um, very important instrument the page right and i'm always hearing it and i mean there's there's at least a quarter maybe even half of our album that was written in such a way that we wrote as one we wrote the tracks as one minute demos and shelved them hoping that we'd be able to find a rapper to come on there and turn them into a, a complete a complete track failing that we knew that they would be viable as standalone tracks but our intention was always to try and find these rappers and that never really happened partly because we're not those dudes hanging out by green room doors waiting to catch the ear of some rapper that we really want to know and say, yo, how's it going? Enamour yourself to that person, organise a couple of more hookups with them and then you know work your way up to maybe getting them into the studio, have all the gift of the gab that goes along with doing all of that stuff. That's not necessarily, that's not necessarily us. And you do need that person around to make that stuff happen. And I think those people are now more and more are increasingly in our world and on, and part of our team. So um, I think it's it, it's much more realistic that that stuff will come forward. Put us in a studio with someone and get us to talk about music and how to sculpt a product. I think we'll stand on our own. But actually getting stuff to that stage and building the relationships needed to get stuff to that stage... I think, you know, that's probably where we've been lacking over the years. And I don't think any of us really believed in, yo, rapper X, we're emailing you because we want to work with you kind of thing. I just don't, that, I just, it's, that seems so insincere. And I think that's fine if you want to make a track that, that appears to have magnitude on paper, but sonically and lyrically and emotionally if a track is to have real meaning, I think you really have to strike it off with the person you're working with. When that's a lyricist, I think you kind of have to be there with them, either in the room or be there with them kind of emotionally or, uh, or psychologically in the back of their thinking when they're making. You know, we'd like, if we do work with a rapper, we'd like them to think, okay, well, this is the belief system that the Ivy Lab guys have. This is how they look at the world. I'd like to embrace a bit of that in, in the lyrics that I write. This is their value system. This is how they, this is where they've come from. 
rather than just being like, okay, here's a beat that I've been sending an email and an offer of X amount of pounds per verse. I'm just going to write whatever I want to write, you know? So there's a real symbiosis between beat maker and rapper. And I think if we can get that process right, we can make some super meaningful music, but all in, all in the course of time, you know? Like, when it's ready, people will hear it. And, and if we're never ready, then I'd, we'd rather it not exist than pollute the landscape with crappy music, I think. <laughs>